I am Dr. Linda Hawes Clever from California Pacific Medical Center and Renew in San Francisco. You are listening to the first national radio channel created specifically for medical professionals, Reach MD XM 157. I enjoy it a great deal and listen to it every chance I get to. Thank you for joining ReachMD XM157 for this month's special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry. Depression is currently one of the leading causes of disability-adjusted life years lost. The numbers look even worse for the next generation. What can we do to reverse this trend? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Gary Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy is Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science and Director of the Division of Geriatric Psychiatry and Fellowship Training Program at the Montefiore Medical Center at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Leslie. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Gary. And now, how big of a public health problem is depression? Leslie, depression is expected to be number one or number two as a leading cause of the disability in the adult lifespan and that's projected to occur over the next generation. Already, it's a major disabler for younger adults and older adults as well. And in addition, it's a major burden to the families of persons with depression. So right up there at the top. Right at the top. Now, how can we even begin to think about preventing a problem that is so common? Well, what's quite interesting is that we're beginning to recognize both biological and social risk factors for the emergence of depressive symptoms. One well-established example is individuals taking interleukin therapy for malignant melanoma, and it's clear that about a quarter of persons who are treated that way will develop a major depressive disorder, and in fact, the depression will be so severe that they'll stop their chemotherapy. So this is life-saving treatment for which a depressive episode is predictably precipitated and can interfere with life-saving treatment. There are other examples, uh, individuals with vision impairment due to macular degeneration, which occurs mostly for older persons. A substantial number of those, as many as a quarter, will develop a depressive disorder that's going to make their visual impairment even worse in the sense that they give up, they overestimate the disability due to their vision problems. So because of the depression, they're unable to take full advantage of vision rehabilitation services. Okay, so those are two examples, but I would assume that's a pretty small piece of the depression pie. Well, if you add depression that follows stroke or follows myocardial infarction or follows disabling traumatic conditions such as hip fracture, the pie starts to get larger and larger. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, these are not uncommon conditions. So for that reason, they become a target of preventive services what one would call a selected intervention as opposed to universal intervention like vaccines for infectious disease where everyone gets vaccinated. Uh, okay, so you go after the people that are most likely to have a problem. Exactly. Is there a way to rank which risk factors for depression are the most important or the ones we should start at first? Well, it's probably simpler than one would think, Leslie, in that people with a few symptoms of depression following an episode of illness are the ones that are more likely to advance to major depressive episode. And there are varieties of subsyndromal or minor depression, some of which reliably progress to major depression, others which don't. So if you combine the risk factor of a specific illness, such as people treated with interleukins or individuals with age-related macular degeneration, 
or stroke or myocardial infarction or hip fracture, and then you combine that with minor symptoms of depression, you start to get a population in which the likelihood of major depression is substantial. And the point, of course, here is if you know that the likelihood of progressing to major depression is considerable and you have an intervention that's relatively safe and easy to tolerate, such as the present generation of antidepressants, then you don't have to treat that many people with minor depression to prevent that one episode of major depression. And neither do you have to avoid treating a number of persons for fear that you're going to cause a bad reaction. So it sounds like screening those folks that are most at risk is the number one strategy? Right, precisely. What's equally important, Leslie, is it may not be medication that's important. It may be a kind of problem-solving therapy that helps the person overcome their apathy, their reluctance, helps them get activated. And it may be a, a form of talk therapy over a few sessions actually prevents minor depression from becoming major depression. Mm -hmm. And as with most things, just an awareness among those physicians that are treating these conditions could be huge. Precisely. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Gary Kennedy. We are discussing depression prevention. Now, all of this, of course, costs money, Gary. Um, how do you suppose we can pay for this? So, Leslie, let me turn the question around. If depression is the cause of substantial disability, the cause of substantial numbers of day out of the workplace, and substantial numbers of day when the person is at work but basically underperforming, then the question becomes how can we afford not to pay for this? Seen in a different perspective, only 3% of the total of Medicare expenditures go for mental health expenditures. So if we double the cost of mental health for Medicare, we're still well under 10% of Medicare expenditures. Similarly, we need more research to show how this can be paid for, how there can be cost offsets. Recall the National Institute of Health. A little bit more than 6% of the budget goes for mental health research. So there's considerable reason to say that we need to be spending the monies to both provide the service as well as do the research. It's also clear in one study by uh, Wang, W-A-N-G, that when you treat depression uh, in the workplace, you actually end up paying for the service because you have more people spending more days in work, less disabled. Now, has anybody actually done this in a clinical situation and shown that it's effective? Well, the examples I cited a moment ago are examples published in the medical literature where the efficacy of the intervention is established. The study of treatment of persons receiving interleukin treatment, it was clear that treating them with an antidepressant at the time that they started their interleukin treatment substantially reduced the incidence of depression. Similarly, persons with macular degeneration who were simply given a problem-solving psychotherapy at the time that their second eye developed macular degeneration, also much less emergence of depression. Is this something that the primary care providers or the ophthalmologists can be trained to do, or do we need to bring in mental health specialists to provide the treatment? Well, Leslie, it's clear that the models that work best for the treatment of depression in primary care involve a third party called a depression care manager or a depression care specialist who's not necessarily a psychiatrist, more often is a nurse, psychologist, or social worker, who can perform the screening assessment and can also perform the outcomes assessment. Let doctor and patient know when the person's better, when they're well, 
when they've recovered, and also equally important, when the medication or the intervention has failed. We already know that half the time that a physician, whether it's a psychiatrist or a primary care physician, starts an antidepressant, that antidepressant is going to fail the patient. What's critical, what we need clinically at present, is someone to do that early assessment. Let the patient and the doctor know this medication is not working. It's time to either switch to a different antidepressant or add another antidepressant to kind of double the impact of the treatment. Now, I would think that having this third person, this depression care manager, would possibly even increase compliance? Well, that's part of the point. It's clear that depression treatment works, but it's also clear that depression is not as easy to treat as the mental health professionals and scientists like myself have been saying it is. (laughs) So that we need to assist the physician, we need to assist the patient and the family. That's where a third party, working by large by phone, can do the screening, the outcomes assessment, help the person stay with their medication, answer questions about side effects, refer the person to the physician. This third-party person, in some instances, could also provide psychotherapy to augment the effects of medication. The problem is we need models that show that this is cost-effective, and in some managed care models where the cost of all care is taken by one entity, it's possible to show that. Now, have other intervention strategies been tried that weren't effective? Certain medications are not as effective as others. Certain psychotherapies in this context appear not to be as effective as others. Prevention research for depression is still in its infancy, so I can't give you a definitive answer about what doesn't work. I can only give you the teaser research about those studies so far that show that they do work. So if we have, a let's say, an internist out there listening to us today who treats a lot of patients with heart failure. What kind of practical advice can we give him or her to encourage them to start implementing this in their practice tomorrow? Simple two questions. Are you down, blue, or depressed? Second question, have you lost interest in most of the things that matter to you? And have you felt that way most of the days for the last couple of weeks? Those simple two questions are the screening questions. About 70% of persons who say yes to either of those have a major depressive disorder. More importantly, if the physician asks, and have you thought about harming yourself or that life's not worth living, and the patient will know that they're being asked about suicide, then that's depression until proven otherwise. So those three simple questions, and they're not intrusive by asking about suicide, you don't precipitate a suicidal act. Those three simple questions get the physician and the patient halfway there. I'd like to thank you today for appearing on our show, Gary. Thank you, Leslie. We've been discussing depression prevention with Dr. Gary Kennedy. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, features a special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry. This ReachMD program is featured on CIRMO, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.cermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O.com.
When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Here is a sample of the great shows airing this week. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard. Join me this week. I'll be speaking with Professor Michelle Goodwin, visiting professor of law at the University of Chicago, and we'll be discussing a business model that will increase the number of renal transplants 40% every year. This is Dr. Leslie Lunt. Join me this week on the Clinician's Roundtable, where my guest will be internationally known neurologist Dr. Robert Hauser. We will be discussing the latest on Parkinson's disease. And this is Dr. Mark Nolan Hill. This week we will be speaking with Dr. Donald Fry at Michael Pine and Associates. We will be talking about cost as a measure of surgical quality. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, features a special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry. For our complete weekly guest and program guide, and to send us your comments, visit us at ReachMD.com.